This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code KEYGREE, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Proud to with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. The 2016 ClojureCons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st to the 3rd. ClojureCons is the original conference for Clojure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016.closure-college.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lips, Clojure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. FBI will be taking place in Minsk, Belarus on the 10th of December. Focusing on web development with functional programming, topics will include Clojure and Scala for the back end, and ClojureScript, PureScript, JavaScript, and TypeScript for the front end. Tickets are still available, and the speaker schedule is up. To find out more and to register, visit FBI.by. That's FBY.by. Closure D has been announced that will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early word tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit closured.de. The day before Closure D, on the 24th of February in Berlin, Bob Kampf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through 30th of 2017. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Merritt. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Proctor. I'm happy to be here. So we had you on almost two years ago. We had some good reaction from your episode of talking about Erlang, looking at OCaml for types. We diverted into microkernels and BSD rump kernels and the likes and DevOps. And we just kind of went from there. And you reached out recently saying, I've done some more stuff with it. I've learned some more from actually putting in experience. And I'd love to come back and get a status report on. So... Figured we'd get you back on to get a rundown of some of that stuff you've learned. So that was about Erlang on Zen and platforms and how you understand and know that your software is working as a developer and no longer throwing it over the wall. So I guess just a quick overview, what have you learned since then and what have 
been some of the kind of stuff that you've worked on? So a lot of the stuff that we talked about, I've been working in that space and expanding it out to a large extent. Some of it I found to be different than I expected it to be. Let's start out with the unikernels. OSV, Erlang on Zen, and the BSD rump kernels are basically good examples of. I actually expected, because that is a kind of an elegant technology, I expected those to start picking up steam, and they have not. And I would say this is a whole perfect diamond versus worse is better. That's an allusion to an article written a long time ago about Lisp, why Lisp didn't take over the world because Lisp is awesome and beautiful and all these kinds of things. And why C actually picked up and C is a horrible monstrosity of a programming language. And it was called the worst is better versus the perfect diamond where the perfect elegant solution didn't win out because it was more complex. The, the worst solution actually became better because and I'm really horribly summarizing because it was more grokkable by the average Joe, right? So this is kind of a similar problem in my mind. Unikernels are, in my opinion, clearly better from a technical perspective, but containers have actually won out. If you go and you look at the available tooling, it's all around containers. If you go and look at the variable support in, for example, AWS and Google and Heroku, it's all around containers and everything is moving towards containers, specifically towards Docker containers, although that's starting to change slightly, which I find amazing because Docker is about the least enterprise ready, like least critical systems ready platform on the planet. Those guys just don't care about backwards compatibility or any other thing that kind of sort of matters. And yet it's completely won out. So that has been a material change to my kind of direction and way of thinking. The interesting bit, I don't remember, to be honest with you, whether I talked about this originally or not. There's this thing out there called NixOS, NixOS, based on a package manager called Nix. And this is a functional declarative way to fully describe your hosts, your operating system and the services that are a part of it. And it is fully dependency aware all the way down to the kernel. It's declarative in that the files you used to build it will always build the same image. Versions are not squiggly in Nix. And if you want to change something, you have to explicitly choose to change it. Now, to those of you who have done a lot of operational stuff, that actually will sound super interesting. To those of you that haven't and may not, trust me, go and look at it. The learning curve for Nixos, because it's so different an approach from existing uh, operating systems, existing Linux systems, it's kind of like the difference between going from, say, an IDE to Emacs. Like That's the kind of learning curve you have to deal with. But like going to Emacs, the value you get out of it is unbelievable. Orders of magnitude more value than the investment you put into it. So the place that I've ended up is we fully describe our systems and our services in Nix, and we build Docker containers because Nix has beautiful support for building this kind of stuff using these declarative, fully constrained descriptions of hosts. And then we deploy those Docker containers to our hosting solution, which is actually going to be Kubernetes really quick here. And our Kubernetes hosts are described in Nix as well. The interesting bit there is that we don't use Docker like a lot of people use Docker. We don't use Docker as the coarse-grained assembly mechanism. We use Docker as a way to move around our, our hosts. And we use Nix as an extraordinarily fine-grained, very controllable way to build those images. And so I've kind of arrived at where I wanted to arrive, but just through a path that is significantly different than I expected. And I don't believe we talked about Nix last time. And I think it wasn't really picking up steam when it was two years ago, almost from this recording. But I do remember seeing you talk about it since online. And Susan Potter had made mention and gave an overview as well. So I'm sure we'll dig in more about Nix. But there is a little bit of reference for anybody listening to go back and check it out if we don't cover everything completely. And so part of that was the move towards microservices. And we talked about Erlang with microservices, nanoservices, and using services for concurrency when it came down to OCaml because OCaml didn't have the great concurrent system that you were used to when it was Erlang that you were looking for when you wanted types. And you kind of, in the pre-call, talked about the old programming rules don't apply and we kind of touched on the microservices for concurrency. So what things around 
the programming rules still apply and then what things around the programming rules don't apply and how has that perspective kind of changed and what things kind of do. So I'll let you just kind of kick it off from there and answer however you want to start giving that rundown. Yeah. So in some ways, this kind of new world that this is a discovery for me, it may not have been a discovery for everyone else, but in this new world, we've stratified it to two kinds of engineers, I think. One is the platform engineer, the people that are building AWS, the people at Google that are building the Google Cloud, the people working on Kubernetes and those kinds of things. And then we, the other side of that is the engineer who is building a business that is serving some product to a customer, right? And for a loose definition of product and loose definition of customer. And even those two sections are really loose. Like the guys over at 2600, for example, are more on the platform space than in the consumer space. I don't know what the name of that top level piece is. And in some ways, it's really, really bad because if you're developing in the business space, and I mostly am developing in the business space anymore, my team is mostly developing in the business space anymore, you have the huge benefit that there's enough stuff out there to support you that you don't have to worry about the low level anymore to a large extent. You can offload that concern to things like Kubernetes or Elastic Beanstalk or these kinds of things. So the idea of getting the absolute most out of a host that used to exist in the past doesn't really exist anymore. You're going to rely on the underlying infrastructure to do that unless you have other constraints that drive you there. But if you're Again, if you're doing a business thing, you're focusing on writing services, probably mostly stateless services, in a way that you can deploy them on something like Docker containers into something like Kubernetes, and you're letting the underlying platform manage the scaling for you. So you end up, again, with lots of caveats and constraints, you end up focusing on taking a request in, doing something with that request in, and returning a result, and letting the other things manage all that stuff under the covers for you. So in a lot of ways, massive concurrency at the app space level isn't as big a concern as it once was. And for me, in most of my stuff, it's not a concern at all because I have orchestration systems scaling up boxes as needed. And the boxes aren't really boxes. They're actually containers that are on some number of hosts. Now, that's the bad thing. That feels like it takes a lot of beauty and elegance from the hands of the engineer, but it actually opens up a lot of opportunities as well. Now, in the kind of programming space, you can focus on choosing a language that is correct for what you're doing and the infrastructure itself um, and all the, the concerns about scalability, those kind of things are massively diminished. I'll give you a good, a good example. The stack I'm mostly building on right now, and you guys know from my OCaml, things talking about OCaml that I am a fan of tight systems. And I would say at this point, I've gotten to the, the place where I really dislike doing any coding that doesn't have a full algebraic type system. The differences between two years ago is that for my personal projects, I'm almost exclusively writing Haskell in the same model. And Haskell in this new model, in this new world, Haskell is actually extremely viable from a having everything you need to deploy a production system. There's some other ways that it's less viable that we can talk about. In my kind of business world, the where I make a living, our platform is a mix of Haskell for um, non-critical path stuff, lots of tooling in Haskell, and Scala for critical path stuff for lots of reasons. So that is a kind of, it's surprising where to me that I have ended up where I have ended up, <laughs> I think is the, the right way to talk about it. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit more because in reviewing for this episode and going back and listening to your last episode, you were talking about what brought you to Erlang was that concurrency story, was the ease of getting a bunch of things going because you wanted a game and you took your five years to try a bunch of different stuff out and Erlang's concurrency model is what sold you. It seems like you're finding a new way to do Erlang's concurrency model, but just a different set of tools than the Erlang virtual machine. Would you say that's accurate? That's extremely accurate. In fact, the stuff that I'm doing feels a lot like writing gen services in Erlang. I'm just doing it in a different languages with different infrastructure supporting. So the 
the interesting bit there, I think, is that concurrency is so extraordinarily valuable. There is a lot of places where, where concurrency matters. The big difference between, say, two years ago and now for me is that I can get a lot of the same value in a different set of tooling, for example. So that same model still applies. In Erlang, I still have to manage load. I still have to route well. I still have to add boxes. That doesn't go away for me. I do have nice functional microservices, which I've always thought of Erlang as that way. I still have to deal with a lot of the scaling, and I still have to deal with orchestration of those microservices. Now, I can get a lot of this, and it's not a one-for-one. This is more of a kind of a meta discussion. If I simply swap the Erlang virtual machine for this other infrastructure, and the other infrastructure is larger, but uh, it spans boxes, I get a lot of those same benefits. Now, it's not utilizing the hardware nearly as well by any stretch of the imagination. It's not handling the same number of things on the single host or anything like that. And there are still lots of areas where Erlang makes sense for those reasons. But when I put on my leading engineering teams in the business side of the house, by going, for example, the Kubernetes route or the Elastic Beanstalk route, um, con- languages in containers, I can get a lot of that same stuff, that same scalability, absolute scalability, adding host, horizontal scalability, not scalability in the same increments, but I get a lot of that horizontal scalability, and I can choose the languages that make sense for that problem at hand. And I find that to, at first I found it to be a very disconcerting concept because I love the elegance of Erlang. But anymore, for actually for many years now, though, it took me a while to, so my job is to get products out the door and being able to offload all of the orchestration, all of the infrastructure, all of that kind of thing to these orchestration platforms and then still write the same model, the same microservices model in languages that make sense for that thing, that gives me a tremendous amount of power. It really does. And so you're offloading some of these things via Kubernetes or Elastic Beanstalk and the like. Yeah. What have you found with the messaging and monitoring and linking kind of things of, or just flat out the asynchronicity of communicating between these services? And what have you found being the substitute for that for your functional microservices? So my microservices nearly always talk over synchronous APIs. Almost always anymore, they talk over REST or some variation thereof. And there's, if I need to, I can push down to protobufs or something along those lines. But I try to stick with text-oriented protocols. And the reality for me is it's not a lot different. Even in my Erlang systems, I tended to use synchronous messaging over asynchronous messaging. And I can still get asynchronous messaging without a problem. There's nothing to stop me from making a restful call, returning an ACK immediately, and then going off and processing things. But I think that back pressure is a huge and important part of a system. And synchronicity at the microservice level gives me that back pressure, essentially. To be frank, I don't find there to be a lot of difference between that. Now, obviously, when I use queues, and they're always is infrequently, I have to manage that explicitly. But that's okay. That's a small price to pay. And you talk about using these languages and their strengths. You mentioned Haskell a little bit, Scala there, and work, Haskell on the side. What are some of the things that you found as working for each of these languages in where they provide a good benefit for a service? Is it just the problem domain and the way you can represent that problem domain? Or are there certain things across the languages that make you want to reach out and use that language for a service that makes it better for certain services or behaviors in general, aside from business? Well, so there's never an aside from business, right? So for example, let's take Haskell. I I really like Haskell a lot. I like its type system. I find it extraordinarily elegant. I find myself to be extremely productive in Haskell. It's a beautiful thing. The problem with Haskell is potentially twofold. Uh, The first problem is not a bigger problem as it once was. That is the problem of libraries. Now, Haskell actually has a beautiful library ecosystem. So you'll still run into areas where you have to write something yourself, and that's problematic. The other problem with Haskell is it is not an easy language to learn. 
and when you're building teams, you kind of have to take that into account. It will either finding someone that knows Haskell, which can be quite difficult, or teaching someone Haskell, which is the more common route, finding a person that can make that transition, that wants to make that transition, and then making that transition is all fairly time-consuming. I think it's a beautiful investment. I think it's an investment that I am willing to make in many cases, but it's something you have to consider when choosing a language. A nice fallback for a lot of reasons is Scala. So there's lots of things I don't like about Scala. But it is reasonably known in the community. It is extremely well documented. It is less intimidating in a lot of ways than Haskell is. And there are, I mean, you've got access to all the Java libraries, and we can talk about the relative quality all day long. But if you're doing things where you're trying to stand up a business in a hurry, having access to all those libraries is extremely valuable. And you get a decent type system. Scala's type system is not as nearly as elegant as Haskell's, but it's still far side better than the other things out there. Okay. And I think that gives a rundown of what I was starting to ask. And when I was saying business, I was trying to mean business logic versus the business implications of a decision where Haskell and Scala, depending on which libraries you pull in, gets you back down to some of that OCaml stuff you're talking about where you're using the types, you're making illegal states irrepresentable, and the expressivity in certain cases for certain kinds of applications become easier to express in one language versus another and the like. And I think that's extremely true. And OCaml is in the same realm of languages, and Scala and Haskell carry a lot of the same benefits as OCaml. And there's two big reasons I lean more towards Haskell than I do OCaml anymore. And one of those is that I very recently, Haskell has the ability to annotate a module as being completely strict, and that removes a lot of the scariness around laziness in production, for me at least. And the other one is that the Haskell ecosystem is unfortunately much better than the OCaml ecosystem. The stuff involved in getting libraries onto your host and doing things with that ecosystem is better baked than in OCaml, and especially in Nixos. The Haskell community has taken to Nix with a uh, just a passion, and it is a very good solution for developing systems in Haskell. But that expressiveness via the type system exists in all three, to a greater or lesser extent. And as you go into some of these things, you were talking about going back a little bit with your programming rules don't apply, where you have essentially the platforms versus the business. Is this still the same argument, but at a different scale of is it just that question of the people who work on the tooling versus the people who work on the applications and the platform is just one of those specialized manners of tooling and it is now something that is a special kind of tooling for a specific kind of project, same way that in the last episode you mentioned garbage collection is being pervasive because it was one of those things we want everywhere and people are working on that and getting that into languages and you're hard-pressed to find a language you think in the future that's not going to out of the box have garbage collection. Is this just another scenario of those kinds of problems that are being addressed and the split of the camps? So I don't think so. I think that types are a different axis, to be honest with you. I equate a algebraic type system with a garbage collector, right? 30 to 40 years ago, I may have made this uh, same uh, alliteration before, 30, 40 years ago, some languages had garbage collectors, most did not. And a lot of people in the language that didn't have garbage collectors didn't see the value in garbage collection. And then over time, nearly every language, unless there is a pressure to not have garbage collection, and for example, in the kernel space, in games and other things there is, you have a garbage collector that's considered in semi-insane not to have one. I suspect, and <laughs> take into account my historical accuracy in predicting the future when you listen to this, I suspect that we're on a similar path with types. Like for myself, I have a hard time at this point programming without an algebraic type system. I don't like it. I, it makes me uncomfortable in a lot of ways because all the checks that the compiler would normally do for me in an algebraic type system are not happening. It's kind of the same way with garbage collection. All the checks that the garbage collector would do for me if I'm writing in C or C++ are not happening. And I have to keep all that in my head and, and figure it out. And humans just aren't really that great at that kind of on-demand constraint solving. Compilers are pretty good at it. 
So I would say that this is not the same as that kind of like platform application split and is more a slow progression in the industry. Okay. And I think that gives me an idea because it was the way if you're doing this infrastructure of managing scaling, managing this, if we're eventually going to coalesce on a couple of different solutions in the same way that types are being driven to. Oh, I see what you're saying. Kind of types have been driven to some of this algebraic data types and the garbage collection has been kind of come around to, there's generally a few ways that are, that are handled now in the, this platform service stuff is at that phase of that tooling versus the business logic where there's a bunch of these ideas and you think that they are going to be coming along and this is just going to be another thing of tooling that you use in your application, whether or not it's picking it based off a language or it's picking the platform because of certain things. So the the nice thing about all these platforms is they're not language specific. Once you put the abstraction of a container in place, or hopefully in the future you're in a kernel, but now container, like the thing, the logic actually running isn't important anymore because the orchestration layer deals with the container, not the internals of the container. So we see a kind of a platform developers arriving at similar solutions. Like if you take a look at Kubernetes, it's probably the most advanced right now. The other things out there, like if you look at HashiCorp's mix of console and swim and all this other kind of thing, they're very similar concepts in a lot of ways, just slightly different approaches. And I think we're kind of slowly arriving at, or Docker itself has Docker Swarm, which is kind of like that as well. If you look at them, you squint, right? They all kind of look the same. So I think in the platform space, we are actually arriving at a kind of global platform architecture, for lack of a better term, that these different platforms are implementing. We're not there yet, but we're arriving at it. And then the thing you run inside that doesn't actually matter to the platform. And that's beautiful in a lot of ways because it gives you a larger freedom of choice in what you're actually doing. So, for example, let's say you're you could I'm not sure this is a great idea, but let's say you're a statistician and you need services that do kind of heavy number crunching. Maybe you write your service in R, right? Now, with arguments for people that do R, because I don't, I think it would probably be a bad idea to write orchestration and all this kind of stuff in R. But that's done for you, and all you have to really do is write your service in R, and that's actually doable. Whereas I would say, like doing this previously was much much more difficult. And I'm setting the foundation for, if we're talking about this platform side, and we've talked about the platform side a bit for the first part of this. Mm-hmm. And if this is theoretically like garbage collection, where a person who's doing application development needs to stop thinking about how I'm managing memory and everything, what have you found? And this is where I was trying to draw that parallel. Where have you found the things that when you start developing for some of these platforms and some of these things, if you're squinting and they all kind of look correct as an application developer, developing the business software and thinking about the business value that you're delivering. How does that inform the way that the business application software is developed and utilized when thinking about the platforms versus how you were doing it before where you were having to either having to buy a box that was much, much, much bigger to scale vertically or buy a bunch of boxes and try and figure out how do I make this actually concurrent now? So the nice thing about this is that if you were previously kind of taking a microservice approach, things don't actually change. The thing that changes is things that you would have had done previously are now done for you. And that that's the beauty of this. It's It allows you to focus on your business, focus on the logic that actually serves some customer value and offload all of the orchestration, all of the management stuff to another layer. Now, I need to caveat that with like, it depends on scale and all this kind of stuff. But for the vast majority of applications out there, you can do that. So it's beautiful in that it it actually doesn't take a change in mindset. It doesn't take even really a change in approach. It just allows you to take things off your plate and focus on what it is you're actually doing that pulls money into your business. Or accomplishes your goal if you're, if you're not doing a business or, or whatever it is that you're doing. It allows you to focus on that purpose and takes a ton of things off of your plate. And it's minimal, it sounds like, if you're already in a microservice setting. Right. Now, if you're building monolithic applications and you've not really given much thought to service-oriented architecture and microservices and all this kind of stuff, 
it's going to work less well. But if you're kind of like the poly, the people listening to your program are those people who are already using microservices, who are already interested in functional immutable approaches and all this kind of stuff. For those people, it really just frees up bandwidth that you can spend on your business. And when you're combining it with something like Nix that allows you to fully kind of understand what you're deploying and how you're deploying it, it's highly likely that your incidents of problems are going to go down. And the reason I ask for the kind of more monolithic or not quite made the migration to microservices is that, like functional programming, there are a bunch of people out there who are interested in it and would love to fill this in and essentially do the sales and say, look, there are reasons that we should do this in the same way that these platforms become something that's like, look, we recognize there's some good ideas here. This is what moving to this would actually help get us, even though I don't get to take advantage of this at work because I'm on a line of business app and I may be at a corporation or a small company where we actually haven't had enough people who actually understands the concept of microservices and the boundary lines of what makes a good microservice versus not and how you can take advantage of the platform and use that to help transition some of these ideas. So now you're moving into a very different area, right? And it actually goes away from the conversation we're having to how you manage a migration in a a more conservative organization. The way you do microservices, and this is really just a way of doing it, it opens up some choices, allows you to offload a lot of your focus and frees up a lot of your time to focus on the business, but it doesn't really change the fact that you're doing microservices, right? So... When you think about a more traditional organization that may not have a really well-defined hiring bar, that um, has lots of monolithic applications, now you're talking about organizational transition. And that's actually a really interesting, hard problem. And there's lots of ways to go about like migrating pieces of a monolithic application to microservices and how to get people on board with that and how to get your organizational buy-in and all these kinds of things. But that's actually not a technical conversation. That's a that's a culture slash psychology slash business conversation. That makes sense. And it does. And what I was trying to ask was more of, have you noticed in your time working with these platforms, if there's anything, because it removes the management of migration, that you think it would actually help the case for those organizations that are starting to look at it, but feel overwhelmed because of the fact of well, if we do microservices, now we have to manage and understand how we're doing all the management. Whereas if you started with the platform, the platform helps to take some of that management and put it in the platform. So yeah, but in kind of a roundabout way, going this route, offloading all of that work and orchestration to the platform reduces risk, right? Because the platforms are baked and they get lots of eyes on them and they're probably going to do a better job at doing that than you do. In the normal case, and that's especially true for a more traditional application or a more traditional organization. So by allowing your engineers to focus on your business and offloading, a, removing a lot of that risk in developing your own platform and in figuring it out, you're making it easier to make that transition, making it less risky to make that transition. And a less risky move is a easier move to sell. That makes sense. That does. And that's what I was wondering is you see this platform as an early win, even if someone is making the move to microservices instead of just already at microservices and working to take advantage of a platform? I do, actually. I really do. There's two big wins here. One is that you get a lot of your orchestration for free. And it's not a magic bullet. At certain scales, you're going to have problems. You're going to run into bugs. Yes, that is going to happen. It's not a magic bullet. But it allows you a path for moving forward and allows you to offload all of that work that you would otherwise have to do yourself. And it also opens up choices for your development team, right? If you're writing microservices and those microservices have hard walls between them, the languages you choose for those microservices are less important, right? Culturally, they're important. You have to make decisions about whether those languages fit in your organization, what the opportunity cost of adopting a new language is, all that kind of stuff. But it, it gives you the choice where you might not have had it before or might not have had it as easily before. And in a lot of ways, I think that's kind of driving openness to alternatives, which wasn't there before. I hope in any case. And as we talk about these platforms, you've talked about Nix a little bit. You gave an overview of Nix and Nix OS. 
How have you found actually setting some of this stuff up with Nix? And what are some of those patterns that you use? You mentioned you do it at a very fine grain level. But I guess start with another little deeper insight into Nix and then how it fits in if someone was to start looking at adopting it and where that management comes from, as opposed to something like a Docker file is what I assume, or the equivalent, you start using Nix. Is that accurate? Yep. So let's let's start at a very high level, what Nix as a package manager buys you. So let's do this as a contrast. In the normal world, when you deploy a new host, and let's say it's an Ubuntu host, and you let's say it's you fix the bug, you change three lines of code in your application, and you deploy a new host. And you bake that host, you build that host, right? When you do that, you think in many cases that you're deploying three lines of code. But in many cases, you're pulling packages from package manager. And if there was an upstream release that is within the constraints of your system, you're pulling in new packages and many new packages potentially. Things are changing that you didn't want to change. And it's a way less deterministic environment. Now, you can mitigate that. You can set up your own repo services. You can lock down the versions really tightly. You can do a lot of things to mitigate that. And a common solution in the Docker world is you bake a Docker image at a lower level, and then you put your application on top of that. But it's still fairly non-deterministic, less so with the Docker, to be honest with you. But in the normal cases, certainly there's lots of things that can fall in. In the Nix world, that literally can't happen. Every package in Nix is tied to a particular version. And yes, that means that if you want to update things, you have to go in and change versions. That's a a burden and a blessing in in reality. From a stable operational, that's, that's huge. Every package, every piece of source is tied to a particular version. It's shod. So you have a hash of every change every package in your system all the way down and you're assembling those packages and the next beautiful thing is through lots of uh it's not really magic but lots of complex interaction with a file system every one of those packages is tied to its own version of its dependencies so you can have two subtly different versions of the same package tied to different roots different root packages and they do not interfere with each other period full stop And all those packages are immutable and read-only once they're built and installed as well. So I can specify my dependencies, all backed by SHAs, all tied to a particular version. Every one of those specifies their dependencies, all backed by SHAs, all backed by a particular version, all the way back to the leaves of the dependency graph. And to make changes, I go in and I update packages explicitly. And there's tools to make this, pulling from Nixos upstream and those kinds of things to make it easier. But essentially, the reality is I go and I explicitly update those dependencies and i explicitly describe the services that i want running and those are tied into that dependency chain and if anything changes at a lower level it knows about the dependency chain to a very fine detail and changes everything above it as well and you get new hashes essentially so this gives you a level of control in your environment that is unsurpassed and a level of determinism in your environment that is unsurpassed as well. So I started using it I was building images. Images are really easy to build. The problem with images, amazingly enough, is that they tend to be larger than containers, and the infrastructure and the cloud providers aren't as good as at dealing with images as the infrastructure provided for containers. So for us, it was actually a fairly trivial move to go from an image to a container where instead of describing a, a machine image, like a AMI, where we describe a container using exactly the same set of descriptions. Now, we still describe machine images for the Kubernetes hosts that include Kubernetes and all that kind of thing, but we deploy those and manage those way less often than we do their application stack. And the beautiful thing about this is all these descriptions live in a, a Git repository, and because it's completely deterministic, I can move around in time and rebuild my host exactly at any point in time in that Git history. And that explicitness, I think, is the right term. That explicitness is unique and powerful for managing your infrastructure. And so a quick clarification is that because they're backed by SHAs, if you've got a version of a dependency and I am one of the package authors and I've put out 
517. And you're dependent on that version. And then I go update the binary or whatever package bundle it is. Give it that same version. You're going to notice a conflict and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't the same version of the code that I thought, even though it's got the same version tag on it, right? Because the hash changed. And sometimes you have to mitigate against that. Nix has some really nice ways to do source and binary caching. And so that's one of the ways to get around it, where you basically, based on the availability, the, the SHA essentially, you cache all that stuff. So you always have a kind of a, a backup if some upstream provider decides to do what you just described. And to be fair, like most of the upstream providers are better. They know not to do that, but there's a lot of ones out there that are less conservative with their version management, I think is the right way to put it. And then you've taken these files, you've moved them into containers. Does this mean that Nix... We built the containers with Nix pulling in those packages. Okay, so the container itself is running a Nix OS versus those containers are running on NixOS, and that's the line I'm trying to visualize. Uh, so there's two parts. One is the containers themselves are built with Nix, right? So in the end, it's, it's a container with applications that run. You can think of the container as the compiled output of the Nix expressions is the right way to think about that. In the same way that you take in code in a program, you compile it and you produce a binary, those containers are the result of the compilation of the Nix expressions that you use to build it. Those are also running on hosts, whether that's Kubernetes or what have you, that are also built with Nixos and are also the compiled output of other Nix expressions. Does that make sense? So there's two layers. I think so. And because I've heard the Nix OS described at a high level, but it is a new operating system, right? It's not just something that you throw on top of Gentoo, Ubuntu, Red Hat, or the like, you're actually having a new... So there's two um, there's two pieces of Nix. One is Nix, the package manager. The other one is Nixos, the operating system based on that package manager. So Nix, the package manager, can actually run on Gentoo or Ubuntu or what have you. In fact, I run Nix, the package manager, on my Mac here, and it's quite nice. There is also a new Linux operating system called Nixos that is based on Nix, the package manager, and uses Nix expressions and that same dependency management architecture to configure the operating system. So there's kind of two levels. You can get your, you can dip your toes, and this is the way I recommend people who are not familiar with Nix to dip their toes with Nix, the package manager, on whatever host you're familiar with. And then as you get comfortable with Nix, the package manager, you can kind of make the transition to Nix, the OS. Okay, and I knew there were two different things, but I wasn't sure if Nix the package manager was only related to Nix the OS in the same way that you have apt or yum that are tied to Linux distributions and using apt or yum from your OS X box is not going to really work. Right. Well, there actually, I believe there are apps out there for OS X, but it's not nearly as easy and it's not as baked, right? Nix, the package manager, is designed to be used on other Unix operating systems. And Nix, the package manager, came first, and then later on they developed Nixos, the OS. Okay, and that starts to give me a better rundown of where a lot of these things are falling. So you're using a lot of the package manager to help build the images of your containers then? Yes. So in the case of the containers, you just need actually just need Nix, the package manager. For me, unfortunately, it only works on Linux based hosts, so I can't build containers on my Mac. Well, I can, but I need to open I need to start up a Vagrant box to build the containers. But you can actually build your containers in Nix the package manager without Nixos, and you can actually build images as well. Nixos comes into value in running your servers using Nixos or your hypervisors or whatever you want to call it. There is actually a ton of value in running Nixos on your laptop. For example, um, my work laptop is Nixos. The value comes in in that because, <laughs> this is beautiful, because everything is deterministic in Nix and those packages are immutable, it's trivial for Nixos to keep a handle on a particular configuration of a host. So what that means is that as you make changes to your operating system, change your configuration, add a service, whatever, it keeps that configuration around and you can move between them. So when I log into my, when I boot my Nixos box, it asks me what iteration of my configuration I want to do, and I can go back in time. And that's really great for when you're trying out new configurations, for example, for your drivers and that kind of thing. You get into your box and it blows up. You just go to the previous 
iteration and you can boot fine and you can fix the problem. That upgradability and that movement between versions is one I think makes it beautiful for a laptop. It's less useful for when you're building services. At least for me, I tend to build a host as a mutable thing. And when I want a new one, I nuke it and build another one. But on my laptop, it's unbelievable. And then do you have any good reference points or guides that you can refer, whether or not you wrote them or that you've seen that help refer people to getting started and thinking of taking advantage of Nix for some of the stuff, maybe starting it on your laptop and working with your multiple versions of your core frameworks and then moving it to your container images and the like. So I actually recommend that people start with Nix Package Manager on their laptop, not Nixos. And they should play around with it. They should use it to build their projects and stuff like that. And there's lots of really good information. Now, the Nix manual is actually really, really good. And there's lots of Google has lots of really good information out there on Nix expressions and these kinds of things. And the IRC channel is really quite responsive, as is the mailing list. So the community support for Nix is great. And getting started with the Nix package manager means you can dip your toes in without kind of committing or getting in over your head. The next step especially for those who are using something like Arc, the Linux distribution, is to go to Nixos on your laptop. If you haven't run something like Arc or you haven't installed a Linux box from the command line, you might want to hold off on that. You might want to try building images and then running those images in AWS or what have you. But I would say the move to Nixos on your laptop comes only if you have experience with kind of bare metal Linux. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And in any case, that's not a prerequisite for you starting to use it in your environments. You can configure and manage your containers with Nix, the package manager, without running Nixos. Containers can be deployed to anything that can run a container without a problem. So there's a really nice path forward for people that are interested in that. Okay, that sounds good. And I'll make sure to get some of those links to at least the Nix manuals and stuff for the show notes. Now, I know we've got a hard stop, but is there anything else that you want to leave as potential things for people to go check out or think about around this stuff or other references to go do some further thinking before we have to end this call? So in a lot of ways, it's disappointing that we as application-oriented engineers are kind of losing control at the lower level. But in a lot of ways, it opens up a tremendous number of opportunities that didn't exist before. And I can't emphasize that enough. Five years ago, I would have, for lots of reasons, I would have never thought about uh, putting Haskell into production, right? Nowadays, it doesn't scare me. Like given the right team and the right cultural context, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Trying out and introducing a new language becomes a much less fear-inducing thing in an organization in this kind of new world. Being able to offload your infrastructure to these providers is a beautiful thing. So my current startup has a huge security focus. And that's one of the beauties of Nix, by the way. It gives me insight into everything I have all the way down. But what that means, though, is I've had to do a lot of this infrastructure. And I compare that to what I can do on the side on my own. And the the difference in ability to execute is just so huge. Recently, I decided to do a, a little side project, right? And I had a Haskell-based container-oriented service up and running in like two hours that was serving content to the world at large. And all of that, and it, it scalable, right? That means that it would, it would scale with the number of customers, all that kind of thing. And that was undoable before. So we live in a, a kind of a brave new world that is super compelling for actually providing value to customers and getting something out the door. And it's all based on allowing us to focus on the business rather than all the fiddly bits that make the infrastructure run. And I say this as having been an infrastructure guy for a very long time. And with this move, is there any other resources that for people who weren't infrastructure people that they should just be warned of and wary of that haven't taken some of those hard lessons of infrastructure when they start doing this? Is there any good outlines there? If you're running a startup and you have a low number of users, I don't think you have any worries at all, really. I I don't. In fact, you're going to be in a much better place than you were otherwise. For large organizations that run at large scales, there is probably going to be fiddly bits with this stuff. I mean, Google's running Kubernetes 
there's lots of big organizations running it, but I think there's probably still lessons to be learned there. So I would be cautious when rolling something out at a large organization with a high loads. But for the vast majority of folks, like this is a, a no-brainer in my mind. You can use your functional languages. They're going to deploy and run without a problem in these existing beautiful orchestration systems that are out there that are already provided out there for people. People are uniquely situated to use functional languages and functional approaches in business in a way that they never were before with the requisite wins for productivity and maintainability and all that kind of stuff that we as functional developers, functional engineers are used to having. And without all the additional load we used to have to carry for doing a one-off language in a world that didn't support them. So uh, it's not so much a worry about this, worry about that. It's like, go learn this stuff. It's a little hard, but go learn it. And if you learn it, you can have the ability to do things that you weren't able to do before. And that sounds like a great just piece of advice and outline of some of the power that it gets you just if you're in one of those places that are the monolith still that you still understand it and you know it and you're ready for when those opportunities show up to be able to make an attempt at using this for the small thing that's not super critical. Absolutely. But also these guys, I know you're all out there and listening to this that are doing a startup on the side or have had dreams of doing startups and really enjoy functional languages and the productivity it brings you, you're in a place now you just execute, right? So much is taken off of your plate as far as having to deal with all the fiddly bits of orchestration and management. You can focus on the business. So you could actually run a business in as a side project. It's uh, Now, obviously, as it scales and takes up more time and all this kind of stuff, it becomes problematic. But getting started is so much easier now than it used to be. And getting started in a functional, pragmatic language that we all love is so much easier than it used to be that it goes from the realm of hard but doable to easy and should do it. And then where can people find you? Has any of that information changed since we last talked? Are there better places for people to track you down and follow you online? The only thing that's materially changed is I've updated my blog and I'm starting to add articles again after a couple of years. So there's a few more articles and I suspect I'll continue to add stuff. But other than that, all the usual contact information hasn't changed in a long time. And I'll just make sure to include those in the show notes then if nothing's really changed. So I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Pilcher for the logo. And once again, thank you for reaching out, Eric. It was great getting a rundown of how things have changed, what you've learned, and where you're thinking some of the stuff applies. And especially with how we might be able to push some of these ideas forward from functional languages by having an easy platform to get things up and running with. Thank you, Proctor. I always enjoy it. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.